Mark 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathiah the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, It is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. All right, thank you, Jeff, for reading that. That's going to be our passage this morning that we'll be studying. But again, let's just turn to the Lord in prayer for a moment. God, we ask for your help right now as we look at this passage and finish up this particular section of Mark. We pray for you to guide us through it now. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage that Jeff just read is the last of five exchanges that Jesus has had with the religious authorities. Um, The gospel of Mark starts with Mark saying Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Son of God. And then Jesus' first words in chapter 1, verse 15 is, the time is fulfilled, the era of the past is done, the kingdom of God is at hand, the authority, the rule and reign of God is here. Now repent and believe the gospel. So then Jesus does five miracles as signs to validate who he is. And so we saw that several weeks ago where he was casting out demons and healing sick people and cleansing a leper and uh, healing a paralytic. Those signs are validations of who Jesus is. They are, they are evidence and proof that the power of the kingdom of God is in Jesus. So now he's ready to preach and teach and begin his public ministry. So at the end of his miracles, beginning of chapter 2, he starts these exchanges with the religious leaders. And so now he's engaging in a, a ministry that involves both miracles and teaching, and it moves more into teaching. We'll see miracles in the future, but he's teaching more and more. And the first exchange that he had with the religious leaders was over his statement that a man's sins were forgiven. That was exchange number one. And they just about lost it because who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, following that, Jesus is calling Levi to himself, and he goes and sits with tax collectors and sinners and has a meal with them, and they can't believe that he is associating with people who are unclean. And Jesus teaches them, 
Now, I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. That's why I'm here. Those who see themselves in sin need a Savior, and that's why I'm here. And it was a little poke in the eye because the Pharisees don't see their sin. Following that, there was this question about fasting. And Jesus takes that as an opportunity to tell them, don't bring your old rules into this new era. And he uses this illustration about an old garment, and you don't apply a new patch to it, the two won't fit. The new patch will shrink when it's washed, and it will destroy the old garment. Then he used that illustration of wineskins. Don't pour the new wine into old wineskins. The old wineskins are about as far as they can go. If you pour new wine in there, a little more fermentation is going to take place, and those wineskins are going to break. He says you can't combine the old with the new. And so moving from that, it's appropriate that Jesus would make that statement, especially about the garment and about those wineskins, not bringing your old into the new, where he would move into this next section where he's talking about the Sabbath. A very uh, treasured command among God's people. A sign command. In fact, the Jews were the ones in the world who kept this day. No other religion was keeping a seventh day. And so when people would look at them and say, you work six days and then you take one day off and you don't do anything, why do you do that? We see that you're doing something different. It was a sign to the rest of the people, this culture, this group, this nation, they're very different. And so they held on to that because by obeying that command, it made them different. And Jesus has got some, got some hard things for them to hear that we're moving into a new era. And essentially, keeping that command is not what's going to make you different. I will make you different. So we're moving into this section, and the big idea that I want to give to you is in the form of a question this morning. Here's the question For our big idea, are we surrendered to Jesus or to rules? See, that's where the Pharisees were. They were giving themselves over to rules, and here is Jesus, and there's very clearly a line that's been drawn, and they're not ready to cross that line where their heart is given over to Jesus. And so we have to think through this this morning. Are we surrendered to Jesus or to rules? All right, well, let's jump into our passage to see how he's simply criticizing the disciples. And point number two, I'll give them to you now. Point number one is simply criticizing the disciples. And point number two is criticizing Jesus. Criticizing the disciples. And then point number two is criticizing Jesus. Okay, so verse 23, the end of chapter 2. One Sabbath day, he was going through the grain fields, that is Jesus, and as they, that is Jesus and his disciples, made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and here's another group here, the Pharisees. So you've got Jesus, you've got his disciples, and now you've got the Pharisees, and look at what the Pharisees ask. They tell Jesus, look, as though he couldn't see. 
Why are they, that is your disciples, not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath? So Mark mentions Sabbath twice here. And in order for us to really appreciate where the Pharisees are coming from, we want to be in their world of understanding and hearing the Old Testament. They held the Sabbath dearly. They held it as a benchmark even of their righteousness. The Sabbath is given in the Old Testament. Let me give you a few passages. Genesis chapter 2 is where we see the first mention of a day set aside for rest. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. This goes back to the creation account. And all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on that seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work. And you see at the end of that passage that God blessed that day and made it separate. He made it holy. Why did he do that? Because on that day, he rested or he took a break from the work that he had been previously doing. Now, some think, was, was God laying down to take a nap on that day? No, the, the idea is that he was doing six days of a certain work, and then on that seventh day, he took a break from it. Now, you move forward in Old Testament history, and you come to Sinai. That day in Genesis 2 now becomes part of a code It becomes part of the law for Israel. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Here's the code that's given to Israel. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no do any work. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Nobody's supposed to be doing any work. No one. Why is that? Well, he appeals to what happened in creation now. He says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here's Israel at Sinai, and they might ask the question, this new law that is coming to us, that is governing us as a nation, this new set of laws that will govern everything that we do, from the way we exchange money, to the garments we wear, to the feasts and holidays, to the leaders that we appoint, to our religious system, we also have this law about Sabbath, Why are we supposed to observe this Sabbath? And God says, I want you to observe it for this reason. Because it's a pattern after me. In six days, I did work, and then I took a break from the work. Now, there's a third passage that comes up in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. So you'll find a lot repeated from Exodus in Deuteronomy. So here's Moses giving the law again. It says this, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord God commanded you. Now here's another component. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Now, this is the second time that Moses announces to Israel 
to keep the Sabbath. This is the fourth commandment out of the ten. And on this particular occasion, Moses says one more thing. Keep the Sabbath as a way to remember that God, with a mighty outstretched arm, redeemed you out of Egypt. And so for Israel, this day was very important. It pointed backwards to what God had done for them. So you can think about it perhaps this way. In a few months, we will have Memorial Day. Every year, a day is set aside where we as Americans take the day off from work, but that day is set aside for us to purposefully remember what people have done for us, what our our soldiers have done for us in the past. And so our mind goes in that direction and we're thankful for what they've done. Well, the Sabbath was similar to that. Although it wasn't once a year, it was every seven days, Israel was turning backwards and remembering what God had done for them. And it would help their worship of God. So for these Jews now in Mark chapter 2, They are seeing Jesus and his disciples, and they're seeing them out in the field plucking grains, perhaps ears of corn, perhaps it's, you know, who knows what particular grains it was at the time. But they see Jesus and his followers doing this, and they're saying, this is a gross violation of the fourth commandment. Now, to add to this, The Pharisees were really good at taking the commands that God had given to them. And people would ask questions like this. What constitutes work? What constitutes labor on the Sabbath? And the Jewish leaders were more than happy to come up with a list of extra rules that were like commentary on what it meant to work on the Sabbath. So here are a few of them. You could not carry children on the Sabbath. That would be extra work. All right, I don't know how that's going to happen, but uh, if your animals were going to give birth on the Sabbath, you couldn't assist your animals. If an animal falls into a pit, you can't help the animal get out of the pit. You can't tie a knot. You can't loosen a knot. You can sew, but you can only sew one stitch, and that's it. My favorite one I came across in this commentary this week, you could walk 1,999 paces. But if you walked one more step, it would be considered work. So we're talking about one two thousandth of a journey now. You cross the line, and now you are actually working. So these Jews have the Sabbath command over here, and then they have this weighty running commentary explaining to them what work is. It was an extra burden to these, to to people. Now, just pause there for a second. All these additional standards were probably meant in some way, to help people. Uh, Because the questions came up. But can't you begin to see the danger of this running commentary that goes beyond Scripture? Anytime you move on from God's Word and insert moralistic boundaries as being authoritative and judge people for breaking those boundaries, you have crossed over into what we call legalism. 
And I think there's two groups of churches. There are churches that don't care about the Bible in the sense that they really don't take it seriously. They'll look for a few feel-good sermons, try to preach that, and ignore the rest. Then there are other churches that really take the Bible seriously. Like they want to study it together, and, and they expect to be taught the Bible. And I think, I think that's us. I think we take the Bible seriously. The danger with this group over here that we would say we belong to is that because we take it so seriously, we can easily add principles and then applications and then standards and then boundaries which become imposing on other people. And I think most of us who have grown up in Christian homes can look to the past and not with blame towards our parents or blame towards the church, we can see where there was this imposing amount of legalism and the question would come up, well, where's that in the Bible? And you'd get this really weird answer where at the end you'd say, I, I still don't have my question answered. Where was that in the Bible? We have to be careful about that as we take God's word seriously. And here are the Pharisees taking God's word seriously, but adding to it and having all kinds of burdens coming down on the people. And the Pharisees are now telling Jesus, hey, look at your disciples. Get your eyes on them. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? In the book of Exodus, it said that anyone who did work on the Sabbath should be put to death. So how is Jesus going to respond to this? I mean, it does have the weight of Old Testament. It has the weight of extra religious sort of commentary about the Sabbath. How is Jesus going to answer this about his disciples? Well, he responds to them in verse 25. You know how they asked him, hey, Jesus, look, do you see what your disciples are doing? He responds to them with a question. Have you never read what David did? And it, I think Jesus is kind of poking back at them like, yeah, I can see my disciples. Have you never read the Bible, <clears throat> this particular section? Here's what David did. When he was in need, he was on the run from King Saul who was hunting him down. And he ran to the tabernacle because he had no food. And there in the tabernacle was this table of bread. And this bread was set before the Lord. It would sit there. And at the end of a certain period, that bread, according to the law, was only for the priests. The priests could eat it. And so here's David, not a priest, with a group of hungry men who need food. He goes into this tabernacle and he asks the priest for the food and the priest gives him the food. And you could say, well, that's breaking the law. But nowhere in the Old Testament is David condemned for breaking that particular law. And so what was better for David and his men to starve to death or to keep the law? And the answer is obvious. It was better for David to do that. What Jesus is simply doing is helping them see that there are other ways in which the law needs to be considered or thought about. Like, Pharisees, you're not seeing the whole picture here. There's more to what's taking place, and remember where we've come from. Let's not be mixing new wine with old wineskins. So notice how Jesus concludes this exchange with the Pharisees. He says to them in verse 27, 
the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was never meant to be an authority that crushed people under its weight. It was written down in the Ten Commandments to Israel as a means of rest, as a means to serve man by giving him additional time to focus on what God had done for him. The Sabbath was made to serve man, but then Jesus goes on and drops a bomb on them. He says this, Now, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. I mean, if they're wondering, Jesus, where are you going with all of this? Jesus tells them, hey, there's another way to see things, but I want you to know, uh, above all this, I am Lord over the Sabbath. I'm the one who was at creation. I'm the one who made the world and the universe in six days. I'm the one who took a break from rest. I am the one who has authority over Sabbath. So the focus now shouldn't be on the rule, but it should be on the one who made the rule. The one who made Sabbath. This is where Jesus is turning their attention. Like, you're so focused on the rules that you're forgetting the rule giver. And there's going to be a huge problem because an era is coming to an end. And the kingdom of God, I am coming into your presence. Now, just a little tidbit of information here. Jesus never commands Sabbath rest. So you begin to start asking yourself the question, is something different going on? And I'm going to show my cards here and then more later. The answer is yes, something different is going on here. In Matthew's gospel, this same story is given. But preceding the story, Jesus gives this verse that you're well familiar with, that talks about rest. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. He says in this, in Matthew's gospel, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice what he's calling people to do. Come to me. I'm the one who will give you rest. And the Pharisees, in Matthew's gospel, moving into these stories that we're covering right now, they start focusing so much on resting on the Sabbath that they miss the one whom they're supposed to come to for rest. Jesus would have had a perfect opportunity to tell his disciples, hey, I need, I need to coach you through this. You're you're offending some people over here, and you really need to practice Sabbath rest. But instead, he tells the people, if you're looking for rest, we're, we're moving into a new era. And one of the challenges of this is that it's not going to be a Sabbath one in seven kind of rest. It's going to be a rest where you find it in me. So let me just ask you, do those words from Matthew 11 resonate with you this morning? Are you labored and heavy laden? Are you looking for rest this morning? Is your heart heavy with things? Is your life heavy with things? I was talking with a friend, doesn't go here to this church, 
And as I listened to this friend, I thought to myself, I wonder if he is so trying to craft his life and get everything in picture-perfect order because he believes that when he does, he will find rest. And it's completely absent from his life. And there's this endless pursuit. We're not Jews and we don't, we don't feel as much of what the Pharisees are saying here to, to find rest on a Sabbath. We'll get to it more in a little bit. But just that aside for a moment, are you heavy burdened? And are you trying to straighten out your life with all kinds of circumstances or trying to straighten out things in your life with all kinds of relationships and have the picture-perfect life? Because when I do and when I can find myself on, on the back porch and the sun shining on my face, that's when I can get rest. If, if that were the case, then Jesus' words mean nothing. Go out and get some sunshine, which I would love to have today, trust me. But are we missing the rest that we have in Jesus? So remember, we just came from that section about new wine and old wineskins. If Jesus believed that the Sabbath from the Old Testament law was going to come forward as a practice, Jesus could have certainly taught on it. He could have commanded it even with grace, but he didn't. Instead, his commands are focused on people coming to him for rest. And again, this question, as we just sort of linger here for a moment, is are we surrendered to Jesus or to rules? So Mark gives one more account of the Sabbath. If the last Sabbath account focused on Jesus' disciples, now this one focuses on him. So criticizing Jesus here in verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, where is he? Again, he's in a synagogue, the religious center for Judaism. He's on the home turf of the religious leaders. And there, it says in verse 1, is a man with a withered hand. Uh, This withered hand is not a life and death situation. It happens to be a Saturday Sabbath here. And there's something interesting as you see this scenario in front of you. You move into verse 2, and here are the Pharisees again, the religious leaders. It says, and they watched Jesus. What were they watching to see? They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath or not. Now, just pause there for a moment. And think about what you just read and what the Pharisees believe about Jesus. What do they believe he has the ability to do that they can't do? They can see that this guy is a miracle worker. They can see that this guy can do things that they can't do. They've accepted that in their minds that this guy can just command this withered hand to open up like that. They have that down in their hearts, a real understanding of who Jesus is. But in spite of that, they refuse to surrender to his authority. They're more interested in knowing whether or not Jesus is going to fall in line with their standards. Whether or not Jesus is going to break the law by... Healing somebody? Apparently, that's doing work. Now, Jesus is omniscient. He knows what he's stepping into here. 
They are intentionally aiming to trap him in his own actions. Jesus easily could have waited until the following day. Why wouldn't he have done that? Why wouldn't he have just waited until Sunday to do that? I think because to do so would have left the Pharisees in their same frame of mind. They need to be challenged here. To do so would have affirmed them. So Jesus simply says to the man with the withered hand here, he says, come here. And some of your translations have it perhaps a little more accurately where he says, come stand in the middle. We're going to do something here. And so the man with a withered hand is in view of all the people. And everybody can see the man right there. But Jesus asks a question in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And it says that when Jesus asked that question, everybody in the synagogue remained silent. Jesus has a chance to do good right now, to do good to this man with a crippled hand. In their silence, it says in verse 5, that Jesus looked around at them and he was angry. You have a window into Jesus' heart as he sees what is going on in the lives of these religious leaders, that they do not want this man with a withered hand to be healed. They're loveless towards God, and they're loveless towards their neighbor right now. They're more focused on a standard. Jesus' anger results in grief. It says that he looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. And then Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. That's all he said, stretch out your hand. And this man in the middle of this synagogue, whom everybody can see with the religious leaders being angry at what's taking place, all of a sudden opens up his hand. His hand was restored like that. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine several things. One is the visual of the miracle. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody who has lost the use of their hand. I, growing up, there, there was a man who got his hand caught in a machine, and literally, it was, it was mauled so much, and it had healed over, that there were just four stumps that came out of his hand right here. And he could wiggle those four stumps, and as a kid, it just intrigued me. Mr. Mundro was his name. And I'm imagining something like that where a hand has been bent up or, or shriveled or, or lost in some capacity. It's visual. You know that that's not normal. But right in front of your eyes, all of a sudden, that hand is restored to full health. You're standing there saying, wow, this guy is amazing. Or this guy just broke my standard. This guy doesn't meet me where I'm at. And so what happens in verse 6 is the Pharisees went out 
and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. We don't know much about the Herodians. We think that they're mostly a political group that supports Herod. So here you have this religious group, and now you have this group of Herodians. It says that they come together now in order to destroy him. And Jesus had just asked the question earlier, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And clearly... It's not lawful to kill on the Sabbath, but this is what the Pharisees and the Herodians are planning. They're kind of caught in their own hardness of heart, practicing sin against the standard that they've set up for themselves. And that's how Mark concludes this section involving Jesus and these religious leaders. And we're left asking the question, which side do we fall on? With whom would we respond? And it comes down to this question, are we surrendered to Jesus or to rules? And you're like, well, wait a second. Is that a fair question because Jesus gives rules that we're supposed to follow? And the answer is yes. But you realize that those rules that are given are rules like boundaries that keep us close to him. They're boundaries that allow us to thrive in life. They're they're boundaries that allow us to have this relationship that keeps going forward with him. There are rules that can be kept, and the result of that rule-keeping is that you step back and and you say, now I kept all these rules, and and wow, you're a good rule-keeper. You're a good rule-keeper. Wow, you've got a good standard of righteousness. You must be a good person. You see, there's two different ways of looking at this. And Jesus is asking the question, where do you stand? Okay, so application number one. We must surrender to Jesus as our highest authority. We must surrender to Jesus as our highest authority. Don't forget where we've been. Throughout the last five stories, we've seen the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. The Pharisees would not surrender to Jesus. They wanted their rules and their code of conduct. If I just act the right way, I am right. And again, some of you may have come from backgrounds where there were standards that were put alongside of the Bible, and it was almost as if if you keep those standards, if you just obey those rules, God is happy with you, and you find yourself so concerned about what you have to do in order to be living obediently, you're constantly checking yourself against a standard and asking, did I do it right? Because if I didn't do it right, I'm a terrible person. And that standard becomes a make-or-break kind of living for you. It becomes burdensome, which is why Jesus would tell the Pharisees later on, woe to you because you have placed unnecessary burdens on people. It's not about them having a relationship with God. It's about them now keeping rules in order to make you happy. The rules become ultimate. They become the highest authority. And again, Jesus is not saying throw out all the rules. He's saying, do you see that Rules that I've given to you are for the purpose of having a relationship with me. So if my dad owns a company, which he doesn't, I could work there in order to keep the rules and find myself measuring my attendance, my punctuality, my deadlines by the employee handbook. 
you know, my work production and step back and say, yeah, I'm doing a great job here. Or I could see that my dad owns this company and I could see I've got a privilege to work alongside of my dad. I've got a privilege to serve my dad. I've got a privilege to love him. With rule keeping, even this morning, some of you may have shown up at church because Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, don't forsake the assembling. It's a command. But that command is not the end all so that you would show up and measure your standard of righteousness against the command. God gives us these commands so that we can enter into that relationship with him and grow in our love for him. Are we making decisions regularly out of our love and surrender to Jesus Christ? Do you side with him? And you have to decide whether or not his authority is ultimate. It seems as though that is sort of the punctuation in this last set of exchanges here about the Sabbath. Jesus versus the rules, and the Pharisees were missing Jesus. Are you missing Jesus? The second application is a little more elastic in nature, you might say. And I think it ties in. Understand the new era of rest in Jesus. Understand the new era of rest in Jesus. Remember, we came off the previous section. Don't mix the new wine with the old wineskins. We're moving on. Now, how does that apply here? I don't believe that we are under the Sabbath law. You would say, does that mean we're not under all ten of the commandments? And I would graciously, humbly say, That's correct. I do not think that we're under all ten of the commandments. I think you'll find nine of the commandments regularly repeated for the sake of obeying the Lord and walking in fellowship with him. But I don't think you find this tenth commandment repeated. There's a principle that you see back in Genesis 2 where God worked six days, took a break. It's a good principle to follow. And I think you could even say, hey, I want to image God in that way. And I want to take that seventh day and I want to remember my redemption that he's accomplished for me at the cross. But the rule of keeping Sabbath, you won't find it repeated in this new era that Jesus is bringing in. Okay, a few passages just to prop this up. And if you disagree with me, just I'd ask you to wrestle with it or pray through it and There's room for disagreement, but I'll just try to support this for you as we go through it. Three passages. Number one, the Sabbath is not a matter, is a matter of personal conscience, not law. Okay, the Sabbath is a matter of personal conscience, not law. Where do I get that? Romans chapter 14, verse 5 says this. Paul's writing about these sort of Christian liberties that we have. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced, notice where, in his own mind. Now think about this for just a second. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, which is made up of Jews and non-Jews. And so you've got a group of people who are used to keeping Sabbath and a group of people who are not used to keeping Sabbath. In the end, Paul does not mandate Sabbath observance. He leaves it up to each individual. And in doing that, Paul is undermining the authority of the commandment to keep the Sabbath. If it was an ongoing command, I think he would have appealed back to Genesis 2 
back to Exodus 20, back to Deuteronomy 5, and say, this is continually going on. It should be a practice that you observe right now. But in saying that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, he is, in a sense, undermining or allowing for this to not be a binding rule on God's people. So it becomes an issue of conscience, just like the other matters in Romans chapter 14, whether it was food or drink or days here. Not a law for people. Second principle, the Sabbath points to Christ. And we see this here in Colossians chapter 2, where he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, there were festivals, there was the calendar, there were foods, and then there was this Sabbath. And what does he say about all of these things? He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, so he compares all of these as a shadow, but that shadow is actually cast from an object. So if we were to put a light on that side of the ceiling right there and turn off all the other lights and put an object right here, you know that a long shadow would be cast this way on this side of the platform. And so Paul is saying, hey, there's foods and there's uh, new moons and there's Sabbaths, but they are all a shadow here on this side. And where are they pointing? They're pointing to this object. And as we move through chronological history, we come to the object. And here is Christ. And Christ is saying, the time is fulfilled. The era is behind us. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so now we are on this side of the substance, this side of the object. And so now we can look and turn and we see, oh, all of those things were talking about Jesus in certain ways. They were all pointing forward to him, but now Jesus has come, and I can have the substance. I can have Jesus as my Savior. So in a similar way, you know a long shadow was cast against the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. All of those animals were just pointing forward and forward and forward to Christ. Christ came. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the last Lamb according to Hebrews. So now we have this Lamb. Should I go back to sacrificing animals? No, that was just a shadow. Now I have the substance. Should I go back to practicing Sabbath and feeling the weight of it? No, I don't need to because I have the substance. I have Christ who says, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Third and final application is simply this, that the Sabbath then will be an eternal rest. The Sabbath is an eternal rest. And you can take your Bible and just turn to Hebrews 4. We'll close here. Hebrews chapter 4. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. If you get to James, you've gone too far. First and 2 Peter, you've gone too far. Turn back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 4. We won't spend a ton of time here. 
But Hebrews chapter 4, you see here in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, there, there's the language of Sabbath, entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now notice what verse 2 says. What does it mean to reach it? Well, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith uh, with those who listened. For we who have believed enter into that rest. Now, you continue reading on through verse 6. It says, therefore, it remains for some to enter into it. Some have not entered into that rest. And those who formerly received the good news... There it is. The gospel failed to enter because of disobedience. They wouldn't receive the good news of Christ. You skip down to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, speaking of Old Testament Israel, and using that journey up to the land of rest as a picture, they weren't there yet. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the writer of Hebrews, as I understand this, is pointing us forward to heaven where we go through life, we've received the good news, we have this tangible relationship with Christ, spiritual relationship with Christ, where we can have this, this rest in Christ, and now we continue. We continue, and the writer of Hebrews says, okay, a Sabbath is coming. A Sabbath is coming where you will be able to enter into eternal rest. I think it's a wonderful picture to think that some of our loved ones who have known Christ, all those who have loved Christ, they've taken their journey. And it's a wonderful comfort even now where we're experiencing the unrest right now. We're experiencing the turmoil. We're experiencing the conflict, the war. We're experiencing the ups and downs of anxieties. We're experiencing all kinds of things. And Jesus is saying, hold on to me. You'll find rest. And then those who have gone before us, even right now, just they've entered into rest. They're at rest with God right now. So, again, we come back around to that question that we started with. Um, what are you surrendered to this morning? Are you surrendered to Jesus who gives us this rest? Or is it rules? As we come around this table, we're, we're so thankful. Jesus was the one who kept all of the rules so that we could truly rest 